it just uh, it totally came came to a head and where I ended up in a flea bag motel with enough cocaine to kill a small village finished um, a bottle of Jack Daniels bunch of weed and then just in case that didn't finish the job I had a 12 gauge uh, pump action Mossberg shotgun hello this is Al Levin the creator and host of the depression files podcast for over two and a half years I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the depression files in addition it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show thank you for considering to support me in these ways and now to the show welcome to the depression files where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression we talk about everything related to mental health from depression and other mental illnesses to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, welcome to the show. This is Al Levin, the host of The Depression Files. Today, I'm very excited. We have on the line with us Josh Canuti. Josh is the host of the Overcoming You podcast. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, Absolutely. So I know, Josh, uh, you went through a pretty rough patch dealing with business. So as an adult... You definitely went through a patch, and we'll get into that soon. But I'm curious, what was life like for you growing up as a kid? What type of family? And did you have any kind of mental health issues or concerns growing up as a young kid? That's actually a a really good question. Um, Looking back, there were some signs back there, but never really anything glaring. So to kind of give you the Notes version of my childhood is I did have it pretty rough growing up, but for some reason, I always just had a very kind of happy-go-lucky, very energetic, very outgoing, very um, life-of-the-party type of attitude. But to give you the the highlights, you know, my mom was a really big into cocaine, big drug addict, actually left me at a liquor store when I was eight years old. Whoa. And then my dad was, I I was raised by a single dad and he worked he was out of the house before I woke up and he was home after I went to bed and he was from a military family. And the way I kind of grew up was it was his way and there was no such thing as a highway right. bit, bit physical. Um, so I had that going for me and definitely a little verbal. So, you know, when you're a kid, you always remember when your parents tell you that you're stupid or tell you that you're dumb or something like that. So a little bit of rough, however, and it's not to minimize that. However, I grew up in a really awesome environment and, and had some really good, 
outside friends. So I grew up in Orange County, California in Newport Beach. So an amazing spot, sunny 360 days a year and kind of just grew up and was playing basketball, um, hanging out with my friends and just kind of worked, um, kind of had that childhood. I have a bunch of siblings. You need a Venn diagram to kind of chart them all out with step and half and, and half with mom and half with dad and this and that. So that's kind of my childhood in a nutshell. Are, are you pretty close with those siblings? No, you know, the only one that I'm close to, oddly enough, is actually a stepbrother. Um, he's definitely one of one of the most important people in my life. But my my half brother, a ha- couple half brothers, I don't see them. I haven't seen one of them for I'm 38. So probably 25, 26 years. I have another half brother that's nine years older and I haven't seen him for probably 10, 15 years, but we had a falling out because he stole about 10, 12 grand from me when I was 19 years old and did some messed up things with a significant other that I had at the time. So I still have a scar on my, on my fist from when we had that uh, quote unquote discussion. (laughs) That was kind of the last time, last time I, uh, I saw him. So when, uh, so you, you mentioned your mom was pretty heavy into cocaine Mm-hmm. And then she was out of your life. Was there a divorce or did she just walk out one day or did your dad just take you away from her? Yeah. So that, that's actually an interesting story. I didn't realize this. Um, that's one thing that I, going back to my father, um, I always give him the benefit of the doubt because he could have been a lot worse. He could have been like my mom or like you hear some of these uh, parents in the, in the news, you know, leaving their kid uh, behind a, dumpster or something like that. So I always give him the benefit of the doubt because my mom, when my dad took me away from my mom, my dad came home, used to install carpet and he came home early one day. And for those of you over 30, you'll probably remember there's such thing as cloth diapers. And back in the day, you put these cloth diapers on instead of the disposable ones. And you had this big safety pin that would go through because it's like a little mini towel that you put around the baby well, she was so messed up in drugs, she actually put that safety pin, and the safety pin is probably about three inches long, put that through the side of my hip, and my dad came home, and the the cloth diaper is filled with blood. It's all red. I'm screaming. Um, you know, I don't look too good because I'm just a baby, and kudos to my dad. My dad said, you know what? That's enough of this. I'm out, so took me away, and then kind of the relationship with her is I would see her once a quarter, maybe once every other month on a weekend. But the one thing that is very, very troubling to me, and the one thing that my heart goes out to individuals that have been in that same spot is that I can virtually remember every time sitting on the corner or sitting on the curb, I can remember what I was wearing when she said she would be there at 5 p.m. And then 510 would roll around, 515 545, yeah. six, oh, seven, goodness. just never show up. And that just took, takes a real big toll um, on your psyche. And I can tell you, looking back, that's one of the reasons why I struggle with people pleasing, why I am the life of the party, why I have a heart to help people, because I've been let down so much in my younger year that I don't ever want to do that to anybody else going forward. Right. Wow. So you were you were a baby when your dad took you from her. Yep. Um, and it sounds like obviously that was the right move seeing how your mom was living life. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely was in the fast lane for sure. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I mean, you just mentioned quite a lot in a really brief time, yet you 
make it sound like it was a really happy childhood for the most part. Yeah. You know, and I want to make it very perfectly clear because if you hear those things in just that, and obviously there's always more to everybody's story, but I'm, I'm serious. It's not a matter of covering up. It's not a matter of, of discounting it. I just was, I didn't have that bad of a childhood. I, it was tough. It was rough, but I never looked at it. My perspective on life all the way until 35 was just really happy-go-lucky looking at the positive things. Of course I get up, of course I get down, of course I get frustrated, of course I, you know, um, get angry, all those things like everybody does. But I just always saw the best in people. I, I was always excited to kind of hang out with friends, kind of be around. And then it wasn't until later in life in my mid thirties when real life started to hit me personally, right. I think that I did that really started to kind of affect my mental health and kind of put me down a bad spiral. But man, you must have been an incredibly resilient kid to deal, you know, with mom leaving, mom being into drugs, dad taking you, dad being a really tough, tough dad, it sounds like, physical at times, um, verbal, and yet managing to be a happy kid. Do you think that some of it is pushing crap down inside of you and not coming face to face with it? Or, Or are you just really like that's how it was like you still just managed to enjoy life you know i really i'm being very honest i really think it was just that's just the way i was managing life now i will say on the flip side now after i went through my battle with depression and mental health that i got over or overcome or certainly still going through is that i know i need to confront certain things um, and that does help for sure yeah. And I definitely did not confront them um, until, you know, probably within the last five years. Right. So I definitely will say that. But um, I can only see, say, you know, connecting the dots going back. I didn't see that gnarly of a toll Yeah. That's on, awesome. my, on my personal me- mental health, which I know is odd to say. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I, and I think everybody has different levels of resiliency, right? And I think it's still... I don't know if people even know why some people are able to go through incredibly adverse situations and come out strong and others go through similar situations or maybe even less challenging and still have a more challenging situation to get through it. So it's that's really interesting, but it's awesome. And like you said, I mean, maybe there is stuff still buried that you're going to work through eventually now that you did have a bout. But who knows? That's that's yeah. kind of, uh, I don't know, predicting what will come of the future. But it's yeah. awesome that you're working on stuff. So tell us, it was later in life, you, you got into business. It sounds like, from what I know of you, you were pretty successful in business. Yeah, so I was in corporate America for the overwhelming majority of my life. And I always, I was really, really driven, or at least that's what everybody would call it, especially, you know, where I grew up, you know, here in Newport Beach, it's one of the highest per capita of millionaires. And so when I was growing up, I started working really, really early, like eight years old, painting the numbers on the curb, going around the, um, the block, you know, charging five bucks, uh, uh, to paint the numbers on the curb for the addresses. Then I got my first, I used to install carpet with my dad. Then I got my first job scooping ice cream at 15 and then 
that was at, um, if everybody, if anybody remembers Save-On, it's actually what CVS used to be, or at least here in California, CVS ended up bu- buying Save-On, it's a drugstore. And so I got my first job, scooping ice cream, 15 years old, worked my way up to cashier, supervisor, then assistant manager. And then I became the youngest store manager in Save-On history at 20 years old and not making a ton of money, but at 20 years old, making $65,000 a year, that's pretty damn good. And oh, you're yeah. definitely the, uh, the talk of the town and able to buy any sort of uh, beer or anything that you want or clothes or something like that. I had my own apartment and so definitely was doing well and just kind of kept striving for the next thing, for the next thing, for the next thing. And then finally worked all, worked all my way up to the corporate America where I was overseeing $580 million of a labor line, 22,000 associates across Puerto Rico Canada and the United States. What type and of business was that? I was in the corporate office for a retail um, retail animal store. Okay. A uh, very large one in the U.S., Canada, and Puerto Rico. And I just managed their part of their labor line. And, and like I said, $580 million, 22,000 associates. And then, you know, I was doing well. I was traveling the world with my now wife. And but I kept having to keep, keep going, keep going. What's the next, what's the next, what's the next. And at that point I was getting, you know, a bunch of pats on the back and accolades and, you know, C-level executives saying, Hey, you know, you stay on this path, you know, you're going places. And, you know, I put $98 million to EBITDA one year for this company. And then I went, what am I doing? Why am I doing it for them when I can do it for myself? And kind of the, one of the reasons why I tell that story and for people listening is that, I value drive and I want anybody and everybody listening to go after their dreams, try to do whatever they want, but you have to be content with where you're at or else it's never, ever going to end. And looking back, that was one of the things that I did quote unquote wrong or could have done better is be happy with where I'm at, still drive, still have aspirations and goals, but be happy with who I am, where I'm at and where I'm going and not let the next jump be, the reason for my happiness or for my successes. So kind of ending that business kind of thought process or that kind of story, you know, is um, at that corporate office. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm done putting money to the bottom line for a big $8 billion corporation. Let's do this for myself. So um, I don't recommend anybody do this, but <laughs> I researched and tried to buy it all in one year. It took me about eight months to put this deal together, research and try to buy a $10 million corporation I quit my six-figure job, I moved states, and got married all in one year. I do not recommend doing that. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. How old were you at the time? Um, 35. I'm okay. 38 now. And you, did you leave your job before you were trying to piece together the purchase uh, of a new, of a different company? You know, I did. However, like I said, I did this. I put this deal together for eight months, you know, getting financing, getting um, banks to back me, getting outside investors. And I had everything all set. I had the papers drawn, literally was ready. The bank said the papers will be done and drawn on this date. I gave my um, company a 30-day notice to finish out some of the projects, was above board, left on great terms. And then literally sitting in the office with the seller ready to sign the papers. And the seller had changed some of the requirements in the contract. And um, due to, he was supposed to do a seller carryback, which just means I'm going to pay you X amount of X amount of money, but you're going to kind of give me a discount, but I'm going to pay you interest on that discount. And he changed some of those terms at the last minute. 
and said, nope, I'm not selling it to you. And there was a expiration clause in the contract. And little did I know is that he had used me to get the uh, price of the business way up and sold it for cash four days later, which the ex expiration date on the contract was three days later. On, four, on the fourth day, he sold it. Oh, and so I No. And I liquidated everything. My wife liquidated everything. I had outside investors. I had banks um, backing me. And then all of a sudden, I went from this real nice corporate job to about to buy a $10 million corporation to absolutely nothing. And now I got to get married. And now I have to have be the provider, but not having anything to provide with. So That's there true. is where the spiral really started. For oh me. my goodness. So, so all of the money that you had borrowed and everything from the banks, like you had already committed to, and you still had that money that you owed then? So I had all that set. So they did because the contract was never executed. I didn't have to pay that interest or anything. Okay. But, you know, withdrawing all of my money market accounts on my 401ks, you know, those are big. Yeah. Um, they, they tax you really big for early withdrawals. Yeah. So that was the whole thing, but it was really the, the failure of not going through with, uh, with purchasing that company because doing some, um, some therapy and some of the work to kind of get through this depression that I went through is that I realized that the company was not necessarily the goal. Cause each time I visualized buying that company, I visualized every person within my immediate circle would never have to want for anything ever. And so I could make sure that nobody had debt. All of my friends, kids would work at the, at the store and I could teach them the value of a dollar and teach them how to have great customer service and how to work hard and, and be happy with yourself through hard work and all of these things that I envisioned just helping everybody and then starting foundations and then, you know, cruising around the world and all these things. And it just fell and collapsed all on my lap and all on my shoulders in an instant. And I went from almost having quote unquote everything or thinking I would have quote unquote everything to now feeling like I was a nothing and I had nothing. Yeah. And you were, you were literally broke then at that point. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, you were talking about always kind of wanting to drive and always wanting the next big thing and not being happy unless you got it. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, like a lot of people work that way, right? A lot of people, and they are able to be happy, right? They want the, the next big job. They want the promotion. And some people are really happy with that. And I think what you're saying, though, is if, if that's all you're looking for, the money and the title, that's, that's where, where you went wrong, it sounds like. Yes, yeah. Right. Not necessarily driving to, to do better and work harder. And if it's like intrinsic and about developing yourself and enjoying the journey. Yes, absolutely. Right. It should be each promotion or each next level in whatever area that you're looking to strive for. It should be the, in my opinion, the happiness and the pat on the back should come from doing the due diligence, doing the hard work, elevating yourself from the inside or the skill level to get that next position or to get that, that promotion it should not be the money or the promotion in it of itself. That's just a byproduct. Right. And I looked at every single thing 
you know, going from supervisor making $15 an hour to now I'm store manager making 65. I was like, Oh man, this is awesome, man. If I make a hundred, this is going to be even better. So I'd make a hundred yeah. and then, Oh man, if I made, if I made 120 or 150 or 200, Oh my God, it would just keep getting better, better, better. But right. it, it is so empty. Yeah. It is so completely empty. And I was looking at the trophy yeah. to make me happy and make my life better. When in actuality, I should have been patting myself on the back of how well I've, I've grown and right. I didn't look at it that way. Yeah. Right. Very different perspective. So tell us when that sale fell through, was that a phone call one day, like three, four days later after that meeting, was it a phone call or did you have to meet with them again? How did you find out that the sale fell through and, the and bank, tell us about that moment? Oh, uh, the bank called me and said, Hey, just want to let you know that the company has been purchased by another outside entity. <laughs> and I was like, no, seriously, what's going on? What do you need? And he goes, no, seriously, it's been, it's been sold. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. What the hell are you talking about? We spent eight months on this thing. You know, I've been dealing with the, this bank for better part of six months and really got to know the couple guys that I was working with, you know, cause you gotta go back and forth and got to have meetings, you gotta do all this stuff. And then he goes, he goes, Josh, seriously, they sold it. Oh my and God. Then, so just disbelief. Oh my God. And then my heart just sank. It sank because I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. My identity was wrapped up in titles and money. A lot of times, you know, especially with men, our self-worth is connected to our net worth. Yeah. Now I had nothing. And so since I had nothing, I was nothing. And you know, I'm about to, at this time, I'm about to get married to simply the best person on the face of the planet, which is my wife. And, you know, I'm thinking that I'm going to be able to give her the life that she's always wanted, everybody always wanted, or at least so I thought at that time, but now I can't. And so since I can't do that, then what good am I? I'm, I'm useless. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. And how quickly did that turn into depression? That is the thing that I was so surprised about because that depression for me was so, it was so slow, but at the same time increased so rapidly. And what I mean for, for me is that I started having those thoughts. Like I just said, like, what the beep am I going to, going to do? I'm, I'm not making any money. So that means I'm, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. Oh my God, you're so stupid. You're so dumb. You had these investors. Everybody thinks that you're a failure. What are you doing? And then that slowly turned into kind of drinking a little bit more because I didn't have a job or anything. Mm -hmm. And then drinking started to turn into doing a little bit more drugs. At first, it was just some cocaine on the weekends, then cocaine during the middle of the week. And then slowly and surely, my day would start with a negative thought and I would go down the spiral for about an hour or so of how dumb I am, how stupid, how, how much, you know, my wife's going to think I'm a loser who wants to be married to a loser. She's going to divorce me. She's not going to want to get married to me. And then that turned into instead of an hour, then it turned into six hours and then it turned into a day and then it turned into a week straight, then a month straight. A and week then straight of, of just kind of staying in your place and just, yeah, drinking drugs. Yeah, not necessarily the drinking and the drugs. It definitely was. Drinking was 
every day, if not every other day, not all day, but I'm talking about the negative thoughts because that was right. the real demise yeah. uh, of my of my of myself and my depression, which ultimately led to a very dark day. Right. Because that was that is the worst thing. Those negative thought loops are worse than any drug or any alcohol to your personal self-worth than anything will ever be. They are really the, yeah. Once you start that spiral down and if you're in a bad place mentally, it can be really tough to, to pull yourself out of that. So, um, were you married at this point or was this your fiance at the time? At the time of the sale or at the time of the demise, it was fiance. Okay. And then it, the negative, the negativity and the negative thoughts just started going. I'd probably say about really bad timing, actually probably about a month before we got married Okay. and we got married in the Dominican Republic. It was amazing. From there, we went straight over to the Maldives, had an amazing um, honeymoon and then got back and I had a great time and I was, I was present. I, I mean, it's very difficult to be um, negative in those types of spots or during that type of time. And so that was all good and grand and amazing. And I had a wonderful, everything, wonderful honeymoon, wonderful, uh, wedding. Then when I got back, reality set back in and then it went even deeper, even deeper, even faster, because now it's real. Now I have the ring on the finger. Now I'm married now for sure. My wife thinks I'm a loser because I'm not doing anything. And why is she going to want to stay with this loser? She knew She knew about the whole deal and everything about it, didn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So she knew, obviously, that you were going through this really difficult time, whether or not she knew it was clinical depression. She knew, obviously, that you were going through this really tough time. So you weren't you didn't have to kind of hide anything from her or were you trying to hide some of that from her? I definitely was trying to hide some of that from her. She knew I was down, but she, I don't think she knew how deep in my despair I was right. or how deep in the darkness I was. Cause I definitely kept that happy go lucky face life of the party type of, um, facade going on because I didn't, and my whole thing is it really does come from a good spot in my heart. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back is that I didn't want to burden anybody with my drama or trauma or, or negativity because I, I always thought everybody else has enough stuff to worry about. Why are they going to want to listen to me? They have, they're starting to have kids they're, They have so much other stuff. The last thing they want to hear about Josh is your stupid problems. Right. But now looking, but now looking back, it's such into any of your listeners, um, hearing this. And if you're going through that, I highly recommend, I guarantee you, your loved ones want to help because if the roles were reversed, I would lay down my life for a large majority of my close friends and obviously my wife and do anything to help them. And it would, I would feel joy helping. I would not feel burden doing that. But at the time I just couldn't see that. I just couldn't see that my loved ones would want to help. I just thought I'd be, be a burden on them by, I, you know, throwing that onto them. Right. Right. So this went on for, for months. Were you at all reaching out for help and, were you still getting out of the out of your house, out of your apartment, and uh, able to socialize and do things? I know you did say you didn't want to burden people. I mean, I got to a point where I was trying to socialize and I just couldn't. And like my wife, literally, and and I don't blame her, but she pretty much uninvited me to a, a 
large party we were going to that we were super excited about and she just knew I would I would sit in a corner and not be able to communicate with anybody and she would uh, have to babysit me. Yeah, so I was actually the the opposite spectrum of that. I was still engaging. I just would I would definitely when I went to hang out with my friends or went to a little we have a lot of at the time before um COVID and the pandemic everything, we'd have a lot of like dinner parties at friends' houses, which was my favorite, but I would have to drink a little bit before I would go there and then obviously start drinking when I got there just to make sure to kind of um be happy or be lively and kind of still be in that scene all all the while just kind of putting this mask on. But what I will tell you and some other things for the listeners that you have is that some signs of depression, at least for me, is that I've always been into physical fitness. I've always had had an exercise routine of some sort for since I was in high school. Never ever wavered, really, really diligent. I'm not like um fanatic or the rock or anything like that, but definitely have never have always gone to the gym multiple times a week for 10, 15 years. And I stopped going to the gym. I stopped eating healthy. I would leave the the apartment and leave the house and go have fast food. Um, and then like I like I alluded to, there'd be uh, drinking virtually almost every night and then drugs on the weekend. And so slowly and surely all the things that help you physically and mentally, I stopped doing. And then that just perpetuated the negative thought like, oh, now you're not going to the gym. Now you're a piece of SH. Oh, you, now you look terrible. So now not only do you look terrible, but you're a loser. So now who's going to want to be around around you? And, oh, now you can't do anything. You just sit on the couch. You watch TV. You eat fast food. Right, you look like right. crap. You don't do crap. All this stuff. Boom, 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 boom. Spiral, spiral, spiral until it just um, all came to a really bad night. Yeah, and those are certainly some pretty typical symptoms of depression. Like um, one is losing interest in things that were your hobby, and it sounds like exercise wasn't just about physical fitness, but it was something you did and enjoyed, and it was something you – and you lost interest in that. And then, like you said, you you start not exercising, eating in, improperly or, you know, not very not in a healthy way. And everything starts to spiral down. And I, I just love the the phrase, the catch 22 of depression, because everything you need to do to recover from depression is actually compromised by the very symptom of depression You're, you should yeah. be exercising but you've got your energy is just zapped out of you you should be eating healthy but you either can't eat or you're eating a ton or you're eating crap um yep. right you should be socializing and it sounds like you were still able to do that but a lot of times a lot of people end up isolating which actually is another really interesting thing about depression how one person may overeat and, and not be able to stop eating and another may not eat at all and lose a ton of weight, right? Yeah. And then here you were, you were able to put the mask on and get out and, and make people believe you were doing fine when really you weren't. Yep. Yep, um, absolutely. So this went on for months. And by the way, I want to remind people too, this is only, you're talking like three years ago, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So you've obviously come a long ways in three years where you're able to now talk about this stuff, which is fantastic. And I give you a lot of credit for that. But so this went on for months and months and how did it culminate and uh, take us to that point? 
Yeah, so it actually went on for the better part of probably a year and a half. Wow, long. And so, and it... And, and it that's without go, getting any help, right? No, you yeah. didn't decide to see a therapist or do anything really in that nope. year and a half. No, um, I would try the old pull myself up by the bootstraps and, you know, maybe I'd go to the gym twice a week and then I would say, ah, screw it, you know, and then kind of go back. And so I tried to do the willpower and do it by myself and, you know, do the manly thing that we're all, all kind of taught, like pull yourself up by the bootstraps and stop being a baby and get your, get your SH together. Come on, be a man, take care of your stuff. And it just, uh, it totally came came to a head and came to a culmination of where I ended up in a flea bag motel with um, enough cocaine to kill a small village. You know, every single drug, whether it be aspirin or, or heroin or cocaine, all has what's called an LD50 rate, a lethal dose at which 50% of the population will die from. And for cocaine, it's 1.75 grams. And that night when I was in that flea bag motel, I had almost four grams and I finished it all. Whoa. And also finished that, finished um, a bottle of Jack Daniels, um, a bunch of weed. And then just in case that didn't finish the job, I had a 12 gauge uh, pump action Mossberg shotgun and started to write letters to my loved ones. And with each line that I did, I would, I was hoping that my heart would stop. So I wouldn't have to pull the trigger and it just never did. So wrote letters to everybody. I put a couple hundred dollars on the nightstand with a letter to the, to the cleaning lady said, I'm sorry, this is all I have a letter to the cops. And with my ID saying, my name is Josh Canuti. I did this on my own recognizance. There was no foul play. Here's the password to my phone. It's a password to my laptop. And during that night, I had a little pad of paper and a pen. You know how you do the tally marks with the one, two, three, four, and then cross through five. Yeah. And what I did is I wanted to make sure that once I pulled that trigger, that it was going to go off and there was not going to be any foul play because I was scared that I would pull the trigger and it wouldn't, it wouldn't, something would happen where it just wouldn't finish the job. And so I practiced. 50 times that night. And once I got to 50, I told myself that that would be the time to, to do it. And so I got to 50 slid two shotgun shells in there. Cause heavens forbid the first one didn't work and then went to go pull the trigger. And, you know, i I really wish that at this point in time that I could tell you that it was the love of my wife, the love of my friends, knowing that, I was needed in some way that made me stop and not pull that trigger. But, you know, um, I actually physically did pull that trigger, but the gun had malfunctioned. And um, what had happened is I changed the battery in my car. What I realized after months later, I changed the battery in my car, put the battery in my trunk, the battery fell over and that acid went over to the shotgun shells and actually swelled up a bunch of the shells. So it wouldn't, that, that shell or that bullet wouldn't go through. And so after I click that, that trigger, um, Al, I can tell you, I, there's no words to even describe the depths of despair or that darkness 
right after that because I know it's a sometimes a common thing, but it was I didn't get the job done, and I thought my first thoughts was great. You are such a piece of you know what you can't even do this right, and so that's um, kind of that was the darkest moment. And after I don't know how long I was laying on the floor or, or whatever, just in like I said the darkest place you can ever possibly imagine. And you know I always say that. Um, I'm still evolving and I know you're not supposed to hate, but there's individuals on this planet that I hate, but I would never want any of them to experience one nanosecond of that thought process that led me up to that point in the thought process after that point. It just is the worst thing on the face of the planet. And I don't want anybody to ever experience that. And then after I've done a lot of work to try to get better and get through it and still doing work, that is why I started my podcast. That's why I'm so excited that, and I'm being very sincere, I'm very excited that people like you exist because we need to break the stigma of this mental health. We need to break the stigma, especially for men, that it's okay to ask for help and you're not a you're not a sissy, you're not a pussy just for asking for help. And it's it's okay. People go through hard times, but we just need to break the stigma and get some awareness out there and get some some ways for people to help um, get through those tough times. Because if you don't watch those tough times, you can spiral way out of control. Yeah. You can end up in a flea bag motel like I did. And it is not a fun spot to be in life. Right. You know, one of the words you mentioned earlier, and you didn't mention it around the attempted suicide, but it was the, the word that stuck out to me was burden. You didn't want to burden anybody with your problems and your concerns. And for me and from uh, some other uh, men I've spoken to about suicide attempts, it was often that they had gotten to a place, one, they wanted to escape the mental anguish that they were dealing with on a daily basis, and two, and this is how it was for me as well, I, I didn't want to feel, I felt as though I was a burden and that everybody would be better off if I wasn't there because I was such a burden. Um, yes. And yeah, you had that feeling as well. I can't agree with that more. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And, and I'm sure you can relate at that time as, as much as we know that water is wet and that the sun is bright, I knew for a matter of fact, period, end of story, no equivocations about it. I was a burden on any and every single person that walked into my life. I knew it. I knew it for a matter of fact. And that's why I had to take the, take that action and try to take my life so I could help all of them and relieve the burden that is me. Right. It's just me really messed up thinking, isn't it? Yeah. When, when like you think back about it, like, you know, I mean, I have four kids and a wife and to think that I was burdening them so much that they would be better off without me. It's just a, it's really a messed up thought process that I think comes about through the depression and through one's brain being compromised by the depression. Yes. Agreed. Um, so take us to the point you, you finally, you probably like passed out. I would imagine after all, all the drugs and everything you had in your body, you wake up and do you do you go back to your wife? Do you just go to look for help? What, what steps do you take next? Um, 
so after you're right, I'm not sure. I think I passed out. I really don't know what happened after the, I pulled that trigger. I do know that I text, um, my stepbrother, my wife and my best friend. And I, I gotta be honest. I mean, I think I can look back at the text message, but I don't really know what I said. I think I just said, Hey, I need help. I'm here and come get me. Right. So they came and got me and took me back home. And I literally slept in bed for two weeks. I didn't, I barely moved. I got out, out of the bed to, to pee. Um, my wife was amazing and helped me through that, you know, fed me and all that. And did, that's what did I did. They know that, that you had a gun with you and did they know that you had just tried to, that you had just attempted suicide? Yeah. Because when they came to the hotel, my best friend and my wife got there first to the hotel to come get me. And then they saw everything that was okay. in the, in the hotel. So they knew at the time. Right. Right. So you're at, at home, the wife's taking care of you for a couple of weeks of you just kind of being in bed, trying to probably, you think, were you in bed at that point mostly because of the impacts of everything you had in your system? Um, or also I, the depression? I think the first couple of days for sure. Um, but it was definitely the depression. It was a overwhelming feeling of shame, yeah. of, of despair sadness, um, all, all those things. And I just, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to move. I didn't, I didn't open the blinds. I didn't turn on the lights. I think I took a shower like maybe twice over those two weeks, if that, um, and that, that was it. That were was you, all I wanted to do. Were you able to sleep at that point? Very, very, um, very little and very intermittently. Sometimes I would just pass out for like four hours in the middle of the day and then wake up. And then some days I would be up, you know, all through the night, randomly going to sleep. Um, it wasn't until I actually physically like got out of bed and walked outside that I finally um, kind of had a normal, normal day, I guess, whatever that is. And so you were able, eventually you did that on your own. You were just, you just had enough with lying in bed and made yourself kind of get up and, and head outside. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, it was really interesting. So I knew, I knew, I didn't know this at the time in these terms, but I knew looking back, this is what I was processing through is that the reason why I was in that hotel was because of my thoughts and because of the way I perceived my reality, the way I perceived interactions with people, meaning every single interaction I was talking to, I would think to myself, oh, they think I'm dumb. Oh, why'd you say that? You're, you're stupid, all those things. And I knew that it was, it was equated to a very poor self-image, self-belief, self-worth. And so I had to figure something out. And the only way that I knew to feel good about myself or to increase my self-belief or self-worth the only way that I know how to do that or knew how to do that was to follow through 100% on something that I told myself I was going to do. And so I didn't tell anybody this until actually probably just a, probably within the last six months, I didn't tell my wife or anything, but I literally, I had to start so small. I had to take a quarter and I told myself for 30 days, I'm just going to move a quarter from my nightstand 
to my dresser. And then when I go to sleep, I'm going to move it from my dresser to my nightstand. And I was just going to do that for 30 days. And just, and so the first couple of days I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then I'll never forget. It was like day 15 or 17. I saw, I went to bed, saw the quarter on my dresser and I needed to move it to the nightstand. And I went, Josh, you are so dumb. What are you doing? This isn't, this is so stupid. What? Nope. Who cares about a quarter? Like, and I'm sitting there having this conversation while I'm looking at the quarter. And I got to be honest, I don't, I don't live in a mansion. I mean, I am, I have a very small, small spot. And so my dresser to my nightstand is maybe five feet. I mean, I'm six, I'm six, two. And so that's maybe a step and a half. Right. They're looking going, Josh, what are you doing? Josh, what are you doing? And then finally the part of my brain said, just do it, man. It's one step. So I got one step. I grabbed it, put it over. I was like I said, day 15, 17, something like that. Then I just continue doing it, continue doing it all the way until 30 days. And then it sounds ridiculous, but at the end of the 30 days, I got to be honest, I didn't feel like Superman. I didn't feel like I overcame something. I didn't feel like my self-worth was awesome, but I got to be honest. I did feel a little better. And looking back, that was the one little catalyst that I needed to do. Then I started to consistently take showers each day. Then all of a sudden I, I walked around the block a couple of times and then I went to the gym one time a week. And then the next week I went to two weeks or two times a week and then the next and then the next and then the next thing you know, I'm literally running a marathon a few months later, which sounds way bigger and way too grandiose for somebody in that depths of despair. But I want everyone listening. It started with that stupid quarter. It started with one tiny good decision which begat another tiny good decision which begat another which stacked on another and another and another and then slowly and surely i got out of that depression i started doing some um i started to get on some medication doing some therapy doing some different types of works to kind of get through this mental block and these depression thoughts and all these types of things to um ultimately overcoming them but not eliminating them because I still have them from time to time. I just have the tools to, to deal with them on a much quicker, um, timely manner. So they don't get out of control and they don't spiral. Right. Right. So the idea of the quarter you had just told yourself, I mean, it was a goal you created. It sounds like I'm going to do this each night. I'm going to yep. make this move and, and that'll get you out of bed, even though it's only a step or two and it'll get you out of bed and doing something. And that was yeah. the goal you had created for yourself and, and you were successful in it. And I, I think that's awesome. I think the uh, the other piece that it sounds like you did, but I always tell men or anybody really who's trying to get out of a really deep, dark places to make sure when you do something small like that, that you pat yourself on the back and you acknowledge that you're making an effort and you're working towards recovery. And yes. I think to know that you're doing that and to be almost proud of it, but at least recognize it and acknowledge it is so important. So huge. I can't agree with that more. It can be the smallest thing. It can be clicking a pen, but if you're conscious about it and you go, okay, every time I click this pen three times, that is something I said I'm going to do and I followed through and pat yourself on the back. It sounds ludicrous or sounds it sounds like nonsense if you're in those depths of despair, but I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, start small, start with a quarter, start with a pen, clap three times a day, whatever it is, just know that during that 
little act, that is something that you set out with intention to do. And then just like you said, make sure to pat yourself on the back, consciously say, good job, Al. Good job, Josh. You did that. You said you're going to do it and you did it. Good job. Because your brain knows no difference from a big follow through or a small follow through. It just knows follow through and just knows positive reinforcement. And you're giving that to your brain. And the more times you can do that on a sincere level, I believe the better your self-image, the better your self-belief and the better your self-worth will end up growing. Yeah, absolutely. How long did it take you to decide to go to a psychologist and, and start meds as well? And did somebody have to push you in that direction or did you do that on your own? Um, I asked my wife to look at some things. And so she, she's just simply a godsend. And so she did all of that work for me and looked at a lot of things. Obviously she knows me better than anybody on the planet. So she knows what type of people would be good for me, what type people won't. But that's another thing that happened to me too, is that if Um, Once again, to the, to the, your listeners and your followers, when you go to pick out your therapist or your psychologist or psychiatrist, it is imperative that you feel comfortable with that person. And I'll give you a quick little story. What happened to me? The first um, therapist I went to, I walked in, walked in the door. And before we, we went in there my wife had to fill everything out. The reason why I was going there, I had a suicide attempt, extreme depression, um, this, 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 and this. So the gentleman knew what was going on before I went in there, standard operating procedure. I walked in there and, um, I won't say the gentleman's name, but I was in that office 13 minutes before he just basically kicked me out of my, kicked me out of his office, wrote me three prescriptions, said, here, take these for two weeks and then come back. And I went, dude, you didn't even listen to me. I didn't connect with you at all. I'm sure he's a great guy. I'm sure he's there to help. But for me, I needed more than that. So the reason why I say that is make sure that you feel comfortable with your therapist because that is a very crucial relationship in order to start to get better or or see improvement. Um, and then after that, went to a couple others and then found one that I really liked and started to go go to her every single week and then started doing some other treatments Um like TMS and some other medications as well that really, really helped. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think when you're talking about a therapist in particular and talk therapy, you really have to click with that person. You really have to relate to them so that you can be honest and share and trust them. And if you have to shop around, then it's it kind of sucks to have to go through your story again. But it is well worth finding somebody who you click with and can stick with. Um, it just is so well, well worth those efforts. Um, I, and I usually say, give it a shot, maybe two or three times with a person. Um, unless you're so appalled, like it sounds like you were and you had a right to be that you just don't go back. But if you're questioning it, go back. Um, I mean, one therapist who I, I ended up really liking turned me off right away when he was asking specifics as we were doing talk therapy, like wanted to know exactly where I worked. And I was in a deep, shameful place and didn't even want to tell him. But I felt like, well, this is my therapist. And he asked, I'd better tell him. Um, and it's tough sometimes to make those judgments when you are in a dark place. So yeah. I usually say, you know, give it a shot two or three times. And if you don't click, go somewhere and find a different therapist yes yeah and, and even a even if you do have to shop around um if that is the case and and like you said i think it's definitely a valid thing to do but one of the fringe benefits of doing that and i know it's difficult and it hurts because you like 
talking about your story and kind of re keep cutting open that, that scab or that scar. But every time that you tell your story, and that's why I think therapists are so valuable, it releases some of the power that it has on you. It lightens the load and allows you to kind of drop your shoulders a little bit. It is so powerful to get those things that are burdening you and inside your mind out. Otherwise, it's just like this cancer that just fests and and persists and grows and gets larger and sooner or later that then you can't deal with it anymore. So right. so much power in releasing and letting that stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned TMS as well. Can you tell us a little bit about TMS um, for the listeners? Yeah, so I highly recommend TMS. It worked really, really well for me. So TMS is an acronym, stands for Transcranial Magnetic System. It sounds a little bit um, crazier than it is, but it's a really simple procedure. It's an outpatient um, procedure. And so there's multiple different ways that you can do it. But basically, you go to the treatment center for, quote unquote, I don't want to use the word average, but my vocabulary is escaping me. For an average depressed person, you'd go once a week and you would do four to five treatments during that day for about 15 minutes each. You go in, do 15-minute treatment, um, leave for 45 minutes, go back, 15-minute treatment, leave 45 minutes, go back and so on and so forth. And so usually you do that one time a week um, for, I think, four or five weeks. When I went to the treatment center, <laughs> they basically said, wow, buddy, you're an overachiever. We're going to need to see you five times a week for five weeks. So uh, I had <laughs> I wow. had a definitely big, um, big treatment there. But what this is, is you go into, um, you sit in a chair, kind of like um, just a standard doctor's chair. And you put this kind of swim cap on, it's a cloth swim cap. And what they do is they focus the part of the brain where you have some negative thoughts. And kind of the analogy that I use is that so many times when we're in our depressive state, you know, when you're driving home from work or when you're going to your house or to your apartment, you tend to go the same way every single time. You take the same exit, go right on the same street, go left on the same stop sign over and over and over, same exit, same exit, same exit. Well, that's the same thing with our brains. And unfortunately, some of us take the same negative exit every single time. You know, what did that guy, why did that guy look at me? Oh my God, he thinks I'm an idiot. Same exit. Um, hey, do you want anything to eat? Oh, what is it? What does she think I'm fat? Same exit, same exit, same exit. And you groove, you start to make these grooves in your brain and you can't get out of that negative thought pattern. So what this treatment does, it puts, sends magnetic, um, stimulation to that neural pathway and kind of breaks that up a little bit and kind of allows the thoughts to kind of go down different synapses and dendrites or different exits, if you will, in your brain. However, it's the exact same thing with physical health. You can go to the gym and bust out all the weights and do all the bench press and curls and squats and deadlifts. But if you eat like junk, you're not going to get you're not going to get the muscle. You're not going to get the six pack. You're not going to get the 24 inch arms. So you have to do the weightlifting, but you also got to do the good eating. So same thing with TMS. You have to go do the training, the weightlifting, i.e. sit in the tray, the chair and get the magnetic stimulation on those neural pathways. Then you have to follow it up with some sort of meditation, gratitation, gra um, meditation, gratitude, practice, um, positive thoughts, going to therapy. That was the other really, really cool thing with treatment center that I went to is they would not allow me to go there unless I had a therapist and they 
could see that I had scheduled appointments because I would do them in tandem, not necessarily the same day, but the same week. I go to the TMS, then go to the, go to the therapist, do a meditation practice, start gratitude, um, say positive thoughts to myself and slowly and surely it's not like you wake up one day and go, Oh my God, I am so happy. I am fixed. I am cured. It just slowly, your thoughts get slowly and slowly a little bit better. And you start to think just a little bit more positive or said another way, you don't go straight to the negative off of every single thing. And it's just like physical health. You know, you don't go to the gym one time and then the next day you look like the rock. It's a slow process. And the same thing happened. And it was really, really beneficial to me. I highly recommend it. And it just did, it did wonders. It was a combination of all of the things I was doing, but it was definitely an integral cog in my recovery. Yeah, that's really cool. Do, is there any kind of sensation or feeling going on in your head that you're feeling while they're doing the magnetism? So when they first put the device on your head, it looks like a, um, how do I explain it? I guess it looks like a big figure eight, but filled in and they just put that and they figure out where that spot is in the brain. Okay. And then I'm not exaggerating. I'm not like a big tough guy or anything like that. It does not hurt in any way, shape or form. It literally feels like somebody's just tapping on your, on your head with their finger, not hard or anything like that. You do feel that sensation. There's no headaches after I know on the website, I think some people say they get headaches after I never got any headache, never had any sort of native repercussions or anything like that. It's no so side cool. effects whatsoever. No side effects at all for me at all. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, um, you know, it doesn't seem as common as many other treatments, but, um, it does sound like it has some incredible benefits. So that was again, TMS. So you did TMS, you did talk therapy, you did, um, medication mm -hmm. and anything else. Then, the only other things is just the standard um, living things that we all should be right, doing. Started right. exercising, started eating right. Yeah. Um, really got into a morning meditation uh, practice. That is something that is so beneficial that I yeah. can't, I can't say enough about it. And and I I'll be honest. Before meditation, I definitely was the type of like type A personality. Go go go. You know, I would get up early, but I go straight to the gym. And I, to be honest, I kind of poo pooed. Meditation. I was like, this is so stupid. What I'm going to sit here and breathe. I know how to breathe, dude. Like, let's just get on with the day. Let's go, bro. <laughs> right, right. And then once I started to do it, same thing with going to the gym. It's a slow process, but all of a sudden you look back and go, wow, I have my days are so much better and filled with joy. And I'm able to greet or greet situations or issues that would have made me go down a spiral with a more calm, cool, collective mindset and able to process what's happening. Uh, meditation, I just can't, I can't say enough for. Yeah. And I'm curious about the talk therapy because I know a lot of what your work is currently around and a lot of what you've shared on the show as well is about the negative thought patterns. And I'm wondering if a lot of your talk therapy is around CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which is essentially recognizing those negative thoughts, learning to stop them, and learning to change them, or or ask for the evidence. Like, why would I think that? You know. And, yeah, that is, yeah, that is a amazing formula. You know, in CBT, they have that um, cool little say, saying: "It's catch it, check it, change it." Yeah. You catch the thought. You gotta um, 
check it, you know, prove it wrong, and then you got to change it. But that's one thing that I wanted to ask you, Al. When you were going through your bouts of depression, it seems like, let me just speak for myself, catching the part when you hear that kind of um, lingo or when you hear that process, you're like, well, that would be the easiest thing. But for me, that was actually the hardest thing because like I alluded to earlier, you know, I would start with this negative thought and then next thing I know, it would be, it'd be noon or it'd be um, 6 p.m. And I had looked back and my whole entire day was nothing but negative. Yeah. How did you catch yours? Well, I think you're right. I think when, when I was in the midst of a depression, I, I couldn't catch them. And, and I would definitely just spiral down and it was so dangerous. It would get to such a bad place. And I think most of the work really has to be when you're in a healthy place or in a fairly healthy place so that Mm. you can work on catching them and it becomes natural for you. I know some of the, you know, I try to meditate. I haven't been so as good as, as I talk about it. I talk about how important it is. I haven't been practicing it as much as I'd like to, but I do try to do a lot of things mindfully And one of the things, and I think this is the same with the thought process, and that's why I bring this up. I wrote a little piece in my blog about practicing mindfulness in the shower, and I just make a joke about it, like self-care in the shower. It's not what you think it is. But but really, the shower is a place where there's so many different feeling sensations with the water running over your body, the sound, the um, smells, just everything, right? And it's a great place to really be mindful about all of those feelings and sensations. And it also happens to be a place where I, and I think many people, mind wander. Your thoughts just go crazy and go off, right? So I would practice and practice refocusing my thoughts on the shower and the feelings of the water going down my body, or if you shift your weight, how the water runs differently down your body. And and finally, one day, like it just naturally happened. I had a, a negative thought about something and automatically, without thinking about it, my brain just took me back to the sensations I was feeling. And I think that is, it's the practice that we do, right? So I think the catching our negative thoughts takes a lot of practice. And if you're in a deep, dark place, it's really tough. And I think you need to do the work and do the work maybe more in writing Right. Like to write down your thoughts and to really analyze them and um, kind of make it a little more academic when you're in the midst of it. Uh, But I do like to practice it and catch myself when I'm healthy. And then it helps avoid those patterns when we are not quite as healthy. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. Mindfulness and being in the present moment is so crucial. And like you said, I think it can be you can't start really small. It could be as simple as as you picking up the pen, you noticing the pen and you're being in the present moment because it is virtually impossible to be have anxiety or have depression when you're in the present moment. Because usually anxiety is about worrying about the future. Depression is usually you're ruminating about the past. But when you're in the moment, when you're in the shower, just feeling that water, you can't have two thoughts at the same time. You can't be happy and sad at the same time, or you can't be wet and dry at the same time. And so the more times you're in the present, the less times you have anxiety and have depression, but it is a practice that you have to build just like a muscle. And and it's amazing how thoughts just shoot into our heads. When you first start to try to meditate and you just sit there and just random thoughts just 
left and right. It's, it's really interesting how those thoughts come. And many of our thoughts are negative. And so that's another reason mindfulness is so important. We don't let our mind just wander and go into the negativity or the, we've got to do this for work. And when I get home, I have to do this or even worse, more negative. So it prevents that as well when we're living in the moment. Yeah. And that's another thing with um, meditation that I hear all, all the time. And um, it happens to everybody, regardless of whether you're the Dalai Lama or you're just Al and Josh, is that when you sit down, especially the first time, oh my gosh, especially the first time, your mind is going to race like crazy with all these thoughts. That is 1000% okay. What, what the benefit of that is, is that you are seeing and recognizing those thoughts. And that's going back to that practice of recognizing a thought I don't care what the thought is, good, bad, indifferent, doesn't make a difference during that meditation process. The mere fact of rec recognizing that you are thinking is increasing that recognizing power. So what will happen, just like you said, what will happen later that day or next week or something like that, you will notice a thought and that is the first step. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the work you do now. You have a podcast called overcoming you right yep and uh, tell us about your podcast and how how you got started yeah so it's actually a bit um right turn for me so obviously you know Aluda, i was in the the business industry and kind of in corporate america doing all that type of stuff but then after i went through everything that we just discussed and kind of came out i just i always had a propensity to help people i've started a couple of nonprofits in my time um, before all this, I always, you know, try to pick up the check when we go, when I go out with friends, I always want to help somebody always, 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 even before my depression, it was always a driving force. I just really, I thought I had to have millions and millions of dollars in order to really make change. And then what I realized is that after my bout with depression and after being in that flea bag motel, but doing the, the work that we discussed to get better and kind of overcome that, I realized the only reason why I was in that hotel was because of my thoughts and because of the reality of which I was perceiving things. And it was at that moment that I went, I have to spend the rest of my life helping as many human beings overcome life's biggest challenges, the biggest one being ourselves. Because the most important thing in this world, no matter whether you want to be the best dad, mom, best business person, best significant other, best crossfitter best penmanship person the most important thing in this world is what we think about ourselves when we are by ourselves and if i can help people through being on podcasts like you having um through stories like yourself through stories like i of the guests that i have on my podcast sharing their stories of how they've overcome those times when they wanted to give up when they didn't feel good that mental battle we all go through, I think I can help more people. And especially in times right now with so much hate and so much divide, I think if everybody was kinder to themselves, virtually all hate and justice would cease to exist because there you would not need that because you have self-love. And I believe the way you treat yourself is the way you treat others. The way you love yourself is the way you love others. And I just want to spend the rest of my time, money, and life mission trying to help as many people be kinder to themselves and overcome those those mental battles we all have. And so that's why I started the podcast. 
That's really cool. And do you always have a guest on the show? I usually do. I have done a couple solo ones, but usually have a, a guest for each one. And can you give us a, an example of some of the guests you've had in various topics? Yeah. So I've had a couple um, guests from all walks of life, which is what I love because everybody has a interesting story. So um, we were talking about meditation. I had a gentleman by the name of Casey Howe, who spent, I think, upwards of 10 years in a Tibetan ashram, just meditating and learning how to do that. So he comes on and kind of talks through that. But he also talks about his bouts with how he overcomes negative um, thoughts, which you wouldn't think somebody at that level of meditation guru, so to speak, quotation marks, would be there. Um, I just had an amazing guest who is the vocalist for a really big uh, band called the Dirty Heads by the name of Duddy B. There's a guy who started out playing shows for three people and now sells out shows to over 35,000 people. But, you know, he has tough times along those roads and times where he felt like quitting. And so um, times where he didn't think he was good or wasn't his true self. So he talks about times where he overcomes that. I got a couple of great guests coming up um, over the next couple of weeks. There's a great book out there titled Best, Best Self, Be You, Only Better by Coach Mike Bear. He's been on the Dr. Phil show as a regular like helpmate. So he's coming on the podcast to talk about his book and how to become the best, best self and figure out your anti-self and your ideal self and how to work through that and how to figure those out. And so kind of had every walks of life. I had my TMS doctor on to discuss TMS in, in depth and kind of all the legal stuff or not legal stuff, all the uh, doctor stuff. And that's very interesting, but I'm too stupid to, to understand. So <laughs> she came on and kind of walked us through it and the benefits of that and the overwhelming positive statistics compared to other treatments. And so I just try to have as many people on as possible because everybody has a story. Everybody has a story of overcoming something in their life. And the more times people can tell their story, it's going to resonate with someone out there. And as long as this podcast that I'm doing, Overcoming You Podcast, is helping one person, I will do this for the rest of my life until I die, period, end of story. Yeah, that's awesome. So if people want to learn more about you, Josh, or your podcast and listen to your podcast, where's the best place for them to find you and your podcast? Best places on um, social media, either Instagram or TikTok at Overcoming You, the letter U. Um, I was unfortunate somebody got the actual Y-O-U handle, so Overcoming You. And then podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts, primarily iTunes, Overcoming You podcast, and Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, anywhere that you can find that. And I think that's about it. What about, uh, I believe you have a website as well, right? Overcoming yes. you, which is Y-O-U, overcomingupodcast.com. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, Josh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you if, some, if one of our listeners is out there right now going through a, a tough time, a rough patch, or a deep depression, what is one piece of wisdom or suggestion, a piece of advice that you would give them right now? Well, first, I would tell you that you're not alone. Virtually everybody has gone through that at some point in their time. But the other thing is realize that you have made it through every single bad day you have ever had in your entire life. You can make it through one more. And I would tell them to start small, whether that's take a shower, move a quarter, click a pen, eat healthy food, 
think three positive thoughts about yourself. Um, think about three things that you've accomplished in your life. Think about three character traits that you like about yourself. Start small and build and watch your thoughts because your thoughts can put you in the most glorious time in the history of ever, or can put you in the biggest de depths of despair in the history of ever. But it's all about how you deal with your thoughts and how you overcome all of it. Awesome. Great advice. Josh, I want to thank you. Thank you for the, the podcast that you host, Overcoming You. And, uh, and thank you for taking the time uh, to be on the Depression Files today. You got it. And Al, I just want to say, I know I said it, allude to it in the beginning, but in all sincerity, I love what you're doing. Any person out there that is trying to break the stigma of mental health, especially with, with men, because sometimes we're so stubborn in our ways, I just thank you for being you. And I thank you for what you do because it's a really, really big, um, massive help and noble to the society at large. And we need people like you. So I just really, really thank you for your podcast and thank you for sharing your story and thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. That was mighty kind of you. Uh, well, it was great having you on the show and, uh, keep in touch and make sure you stay healthy. Will do. Thanks, ma'am. Thank you for listening to the depression files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.